Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series again called Facing Trouble and Finding God with a message titled Facing the Reality of Our Sins. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 90, verses 3 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. So much has been said about the fallibility of personal memories. One writer has said that when we forget all of our sins and mistakes and then exaggerate the things we would have liked to have done, the claim that we actually did them, well, the end product, he said, is called a memoir. (laughs) Well, perhaps that's it. You know, one U.S. president openly said that he didn't like to confess his sins. He was greatly criticized for saying that as well he should have been. But I have a sneaky suspicion that those who are doing the criticizing weren't about to confess their own sins either. It is, after all, so much easier to confess the sins of others than to confess our own sins. One of the remarkable things about the Bible is that it has preemptively taken the shine off of some of the great saints. Abraham sold his wife into a harem. David committed adultery with one of his military commander's wives and then put him in harm's way on the battlefield so that he died. Righteous King Jehoshaphat invited the Babylonians into his palace and in his pride showed them the wealth of his empire, only to invite a later invasion. Peter, the man who became the leader of the apostolic band, denied he knew Jesus not once, but on three separate occasions in order to save his own skin. Paul and Barnabas had such a quarrel that they divided the most successful missionary team. Unlike so many autobiographies and biographies, the Bible presents us with some remarkable and godly people and then, unflinchingly, also reveals to us their sins. We've been doing a study entitled Facing Trouble and Finding God. We started with Psalm 73 and analyzed Asaph's near-catastrophic collapse of his faith when he meditated on the prosperity of the wicked. And then we came to Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses. In it, Moses speaks of his experience. God has been his dwelling place, he says. God has been the only home that he's ever known. Life is short, but God is eternal. That's the contrast between God and ourselves. Well, that's the beginning of Psalm 90. Moses is reflecting on the brevity of life, but in the middle of the Psalm, he moves to reflecting on the reason for the brevity of life. And in this portion, as we're going to see, Moses reflects on his sin, the anger of God, and the trouble that we all face. So let's begin by simply listening to this middle portion. I'm reading Psalm 90, verses 3 to 11. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life is seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. We fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I want us at the outset to notice the four images that Moses gives that illustrate how quickly life comes to an end. The first is the image of dust. The second, the image of a flood. The third, the image of a dream. 
And then finally, he gives us the image of grass. In just a moment, we're going to consider each of these images, but would you notice what accounts for the shortness of human life? Moses says that it is God who turns back people to dust and that it is God who sweeps them away like a flood and so forth. Moses is under no illusion. It's not just that he says this is the lot of the human race. He says that this is the lot of the human race precisely because God has made it so. God has fixed and determined the boundaries of human life, and he has determined that human life should be cut off and be of short duration. I often find myself wondering about this. You know, years ago, the infamous Canadian abortion doctor Henry Morgenthaler said that if he is killing babies, well, he's surely killing fewer of them than God is. And he pointed out that spontaneous miscarriages account for more deaths than his abortuaries did. Well, that might be true, but Morgenthaler, in making those comments, gave away what he already knew. The reason for human deaths is God. Now, I must hasten to add that if I had been talking to Mr. Morgenthaler when he said those words, I would have said, well then, who do you think you are, God? Now, I think everyone intuitively understands that God has the right to do the things that human beings must never do. And taking life is his prerogative, not ours. But I fear I'm getting too far afield. The real point here is that our lives end because God ends them. Now, please remember that it's Moses who's writing this psalm. It's also Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses recorded the fall of Adam and Eve, and Moses recorded the words, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And so Moses, perhaps more than any other, knew that death was not just a curse, but that the curse of death was the consequence of sin. And more so, Moses knew that it was not some cause and effect sequence that was the ultimate cause of death. Rather, the ultimate cause of death was God's displeasure over human sin. But we'll get to that shortly. Let's begin by noticing the four images of the brevity of life. The first is the image that it is God who gives the command, and when he does, we return back to the dust from which we were taken. Moses sees this as a kind of divine summons. It is God who breathed life into Adam, and it is God who withdraws the life from the sinful children of Adam. The second image is the image of God sweeping human lives away as with a flood. We must imagine perhaps a sudden flash flood through the desert. All in its path is suddenly gone. What once looked so stable and so secure is so suddenly overwhelmed and is forever gone. The third image is that of a dream. And this, of all the images, is the most familiar to all of us. How many of us have had a dream which seems so vivid while we were asleep, and yet when morning comes, we struggle to remember it? It's quickly gone. When I think of that image, I think of the hundreds of eulogies which say, never to be forgotten. But of course, it's not true. Millions upon millions, even billions, have already died since Adam, and all except a very few are long forgotten. And then the final image, it's the image of grass in a harsh desert. It receives rain and it blooms in the morning and can be brown and withered at sunset. You know, I've often talked with elderly people on their birthday. They always tell me two things. First, they're amazed that they have lived so long. And second, they're amazed how quickly time is gone. They all say life is short and that's without exception. Ponder that, if you will. Moses saw that God was eternal and we're a moment. But lest we miss it, he gets back to the theme that the brevity of life is caused by God. In verses 7 to 9, he fully exploits the theme of God's anger. 
I know that some of us are shocked by the anger of God, but it is a constant biblical theme. We might have expected something a little more encouraging than that. For instance, why not say the hard things that I've gone through in life were possible because God has been my dwelling place or, or something like that. Instead of that, Moses argues that God is angry with us and is putting us all to death. Now, I understand precisely why Moses is speaking this way. That was his experience, and that was God's revelation to him. In order to understand that, we need to go back to an incident that changed everything. It's recorded in Numbers 13 and 14. The whole incident started out anything but innocently. Israel had left Egypt and had traveled south on the Sinai Peninsula until they arrived at Mount Sinai. After receiving the Ten Commandments and building a tabernacle and setting out the duties of priests and the requirements of all God's people for worship and then receiving the rules of holy living, the people seemed ready to go to the Promised Land. But all was not well. People were complaining and pushing boundaries and threatening to overthrow Moses. Already they had made a golden calf idol and already they talked in displeasure about how God had deceived them. They now remembered Egypt not as a place of slavery, but in an idealized way. When they ate food that was fit for a king, they said. It was all lies. But in Numbers 13, this cantankerous group of people arrived in a place called Kadesh Barnea. They sent 12 spies into the Promised Land, and when the spies came back, everyone's eyes were bugging out. The spies had cut down a single cluster of grapes, and it was massive and they brought out some pomegranates and figs, and it turns out that the promised land was better than they could ever have imagined. The spies said, the land, it flows with milk and honey. And at this moment, the people of Israel chose death rather than life. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirm special friends and musicians, Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. The events around Kadesh Barnea are tragic indeed. The spies not only reported that the promised land was better than they had expected, but they also reported that the inhabitants of the land were more powerful than they had expected. Unless we're tempted to imagine that this is an understandable reaction to seeing fortified cities that they could not overcome, a little remembering can go a long way here. For one, just two years earlier, they had watched the 10 plagues, God humiliating the Egyptians. That was a nation far more powerful than the tin pot dictatorships of the land of Canaan. 
And furthermore, they had personally witnessed the Red Sea crossing and watched God drown the most effective military in the Middle East. But Israel didn't remember. I'm reading Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And they, and they would have done that. They would have abandoned God and stoned Moses and picked a new leader and gone back into slavery. But of course, God wouldn't let them. But with this act of defiance came the longest death march in history. For the next 38 years, Israel marched in circles in a vast desert until that whole generation of two million people died in that desert. They would not inherit the promised land, but their children would. The New Testament book of Hebrews borrows on that theme and applies it to Christians. Hebrews 3 verse 12 and following says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then remembering the events at Kadesh Barnea, Hebrews says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so there is a very contemporary application to all of this. God is promising us heaven a celestial city, the privilege of seeing God face to face, the holy calling of ruling and reigning with Christ for all of eternity. And if we turn back and live in sin and say that the Christian life is too hard and forget the miracles he has done, the cross, the resurrection, well, we're behaving precisely as the Hebrews did at Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is a watchword for everyone. Kadesh Barnea led to a very sad outcome. In truth, Kadesh Barnea only repeated the sin of Adam. Given a garden, Adam chose rebellion against God and death rather than an eternal destiny. So has every other human being. And so Moses would write Psalm 90, verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. The dismay that Moses spoke about was real and felt in Israel. See, I could only imagine as the years went by, and the death toll in the desert mounted, that Israel must have been filled with the thought of what might have been. I wonder if some of them had said, if only, and they said it more than once. Then to verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. I wonder if there were ever more frightening words than these. God never ignored the sins of Israel. It might be that we find it difficult to acknowledge our own sin, but it is true that God does not find it so. He will not only acknowledge even our secret sins, but he, with relentless determination, never forgets. We forget, he doesn't. We say, that was a long time ago, and he says, a thousand years are for me, but as a watch in the night. What we excuse, he remembers. We think our punishment too severe. God thinks it is perfectly just. Now to verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And that word for, which begins this sentence, introduces what grammarians call a clause of evidence. What follows is the evidence that God is just in putting us to death. Since the time of Kadesh Barnea, God has not forgotten. And you want evidence for that? Well, says Moses, look around. 
The years are passing away, and with each year, we're still in the wilderness. God is not opening the doors to the promised land and is determined not to do so. We will die in this desert, and when we die, our years will end with a sigh. The word here might also be translated as a whisper. The idea is of a very soft breath, shallow breath, and then no more. Nothing grand about it, no famous last stand, no final word of heroics, no great words at all, just a faint sigh, and with that, life is gone. So how does God deal with the sin of the human race? He causes every single person who sins to die. We are like prisoners on death row, awaiting the day when our sentence is justly carried out. I need to stop here and add a thought. Since New Testament believers know that Christ died for us, that he took God's wrath on him, death is different for us. I know this thought breaks from Moses' treatment of this theme, the reality of our sins, but the thought is needed right now. Why do Christians die? Do we also die because of sin and wrath? And the answer is no, and I'm going to get to that tomorrow. Christ tasted death for us. We die in order to identify with Christ, and when we die, God graciously allows us a union with Christ even in his death. Now, that subject matter is too large for this sermon today, but outside of those who have come to Christ, death as punishment still applies to the rest of the human race. Now to verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. And so says Moses, you won't avoid toil and trouble, and you won't avoid flying away when your time comes. So let's do a little math. In Canada today, on average, about 575 people die every day. That means that over 200,000 people die every year. Essentially, every year, a people group the size of the population of Regina passes away. Now, Moses mentions an average lifespan in his day of about 70 years, and in our day, it's only slightly more. If you're living in the United States, the average lifespan is around 79. And in Canada, well, it's about 82. That means you have about 30,000 days to live your life. When Moses says their span is toil and trouble, he doesn't mean to give the impression that there is no joy in this life. The phrase is much like the phrase that Solomon would later use in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything he says is vanity. He means everything in life amounts to nothing. We attain what we do in life through toil, that is, through effort. But in the end, a lifetime of work and of accomplishments are simply blown away. And with that, Moses ends with a most searching question. Verse 11 asks, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So let's remember what we're considering. Here's the question. How powerful is God's anger? And here's the answer. It's so powerful that he puts over 500 people to death in this country every day and over 200,000 to death every year. God's anger over sin is so strong that he puts 55 million people to death every year worldwide. God's anger against sin is so powerful that he will eventually put to death every single one of the seven and a half billion human beings that populate this planet. He is planning the death of seven and a half billion people. Think about that. And here's what's so fascinating. I hear people all the time, even non-religious people, talking about how God or the higher power or the spiritual reality that pervades all things 
Well, that's altogether affirming of who I am. He simply wants me to be true to myself. Listen, it's a myth. But now consider the reality. God is putting every single human being to death, and even if you can't get your head around that, then consider at least a lesser truth. Everyone is dying, and God, without exception, is not stopping anyone's death. And says Moses, the reason that's going on is because of our sin. So who takes sin seriously and who takes God seriously? Let's let Moses ask the question again. I I call this the all-important question. Are you overwhelmed by the power of God? Because if you're not, you're a fool. But and this is the interesting thing about verse 11. It's a rhetorical question. The answer to the question is, no one is overwhelmed with the power and the wrath of God. And that seems almost unbelievable. Are you depressed enough? Feeling morbid, are we? But this is so essential. Until you face this, you will never face the reality of your sin. But when you consider this, you might consider the one who defeated death through his bodily resurrection and the one who paid for your sins. Consider it well. It will lead you to the place of the cross and the only respite that you will ever have. John, what you've said today poses an interesting question. You know, we know this God of love, this God of love that we serve, and yet there is 7.5 billion of us that are moving toward death, and God's going to allow that to happen. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And, and of course, you know, Ben, I think the only reason I know that God is love is because of the cross. I mean, it's the cross that overwhelms me that in a world in which there is such a sin damaged, everything is broken, everything is falling apart, and we are moving towards our own death, and God is not stopping it. Uh, In fact, God has determined it. It's within his set, determined will. Were it not for the cross, how would I come to any other conclusion but that God is against me? But the cross tells me that God is for me. So the cross should be an amazing story instead of, you know, that's the obvious story. No, no, it's an amazing story. So we should consider what Moses told us to consider, no doubt. And there's something else. Uh, Ben, I I think um, we need to uh, see again the necessity of the cross as well. Um, uh, Consider this, everyone who treats the cross lightly, uh, what other hope do you have? Um, you are moving towards your own death. It will speed towards you faster than you'd ever imagine. Your time will suddenly run out. Consider those things, and as you do, consider the call to receive mercy. Amen. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. want to access all the content you love from Back to the Bible Canada in one convenient place, then download our free Bible teaching app today. It's designed to provide you with easy access to all of our weekly programming, including Back to the Bible Canada, the Laugh Again program, In Doubt, and Truth and Life Today. It's the best way to access content wherever and whenever you want, drawing people closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Well, we live in an exciting time for gospel advancement. By using technology, the Bible can be presented in ways that weren't possible just a few years ago. So download the Back to the Bible Canada app today. It's available free at the Apple Store or the Google Play Store. 
And for more information or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.